Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion. Team. This episode of the Yankees Magazine Podcast is brought to you by MLB at Bat. Yankees baseball is always live with MLB at Bat. Follow the action with game tracking and video highlights, along with up-to-the-moment stats, standings, breaking news, and more. Download MLB at Bat today in the Apple App Store or Google Play. It's your number one app for Yankees baseball. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. I'm John Schwartz. I'm the deputy editor of Yankees Magazine, and I'm here today with Nathan Makaborski, our executive editor. Hello, everybody. How's it been going, Nate? It's been good. It's been uh, a good week so far. You know, hopefully things are still going good by the time this podcast comes out, but we finally gotten some beautiful weather here in New York. My family and I celebrated our son's eighth birthday with a great day at Yankee Stadium last weekend. Went right into uh, some some fun times uh, this week, too. He actually made his uh, Little League pitching debut last night. Come so, on. Yeah, it was it was quite a scene. So, Way to go, Owen. He's got a, a zero ERA after that one inning of, of work. You know, one walk, three strikeouts. So I was, a, I was a proud and nervous father watching from the stands. But one of those moments I'm sure I will remember long after he does. <laughs> that is awesome. I actually took my family... On Sunday to the what was it thirteen to five game against the Rays and just this weird blue stuff in the sky. Yeah. Uh, there was a yellow thing that kept shining. <laughs> it was a little strange. Great crowds over the weekend too. I feel like everybody has just been waiting so long for weather like this to come out to a ball game, and uh, a lot of a lot of people took advantage of it. So it, awesome. was, it was a great atmosphere. Very cool. Obviously, as we record this right now, the Yankees are playing good ball. It's a uh, been a time as you know we, we knew this was going to happen that slowly and surely slowly but surely the team would start getting some of its players back we've seen you know on sunday that massive home run by aaron hicks you know and just there's something about his home runs his no doubters and a lot of his home runs are no doubters but just the physical way he drops the bat it's not really throwing the bat it yeah. just he swings and the end of his swing is just the bat falling. And you just, it was good to see that again. It's a thing of beauty. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how they do it. You know, I, um, I accompanied our photographer, uh, Ari, down low last week um, and took some photos down there from, you know, pretty much right behind the visitor's on deck circle. 
and watching you know the the <laughs> the pitches from that up close i don't understand how anybody does it to be honest it's it's amazing you know how hard these guys throw and the movement on the balls and uh but you know these are these guys are professionals they've obviously been doing it their whole lives so uh when you see it all come together in at bats like that like you're talking about it's just it's it's poetry in motion and obviously you know we had this week begin with you know just your ordinary two home run game from Gleyber Torres <laughs> another ninth inning home run from Gary Sanchez it's a uh, when this team is humming it is a lot of fun yep and you know We've, we've said it before and we've seen it for, for a while here now. I mean, they don't quit that game, that little league game. We, we came home. I think the Yanks were down like six to one or something. And, but little bit turned it on. And as we're getting ready for bedtime, the Yanks are chipping away, chipping away. And then you get to that ninth inning and anything can happen. You know, these guys are never going to give away an at bat and, uh, capping it off, of course, with a huge home run from, from Sanchez, uh, three run shot down in Baltimore. Talk about a thing of beauty. That was a nice win, a nice way to start the road trip. And, you know, further proof that Gary Sanchez is back to being Gary Sanchez. You know, 2018 was a little bit of a lost year for him with dealing with so many injuries and everything. And that was actually kind of a big part of the story you wrote in this month's issue, the May issue of Yankees Magazine, John. Uh, You've got a feature on Gary called No Excuses, uh, which talks a lot about what he went through in 2018 and the way he handled it. It was a story that really kind of came along organically. I did not set out to write the story of why won't Gary Sanchez defend himself. Um, what happened was that despite really my best efforts, Gary Sanchez wouldn't defend himself. <laughs> and, you know, I kept on trying to speak to him just to, you know, kind of talk about the groin injuries last year, the shoulder injury last year, you know, just having every single thing that he did that kind of went wrong somehow become an indictment of his character. And every time I tried to like position that question to him, what he would do. And, and the funny thing is it actually reminds me a little bit of what we discussed when I wrote about Clint Frazier earlier this year, he would grant the premise of the criticism and, and, and I'm sitting there and I'm trying to give him a life raft in a sense. I'm trying to help him and say like, you know, man, why are these people saying this about you? You know, defend yourself. And and he would just be like, nah, they're right. You know, obviously the Yankees are not going to <laughs> talk bad about their comrades. But, you know, if a guy is is, is struggling, they'll, they'll try to provide some sort of context as to why. But when his teammates spoke about him, their defense really seemed to come from a place of truth. They acknowledged some of the, you know, miscues that have happened and, and stuff like that. But they were very quick to shine a light on the, the many things he does so well and some of the things that we don't even necessarily think about when we watch him play. Well, so, so the the way the story progressed, you know, and, and, and just to give a little bit of background here, the story is, you know, it looks at what was, like you said, Nate, a really bad 2018. And it was just a bad year. He was hurt, but he also played poorly. And in my head, as I was approaching the story, just to give a little understanding here, what I thought was, you know, the thing that we really had to talk about was the groin injury and the way that the groin injury impacted everything. And what I learned was the groin injury was the very visible issue, but the shoulder injury, which no one really talked about, the players knew about, but no one really talked about until he had surgery in the offseason, 
that was the thing that made everything harder. Mm-hmm. And and so there were a couple things that I really found interesting in talking to players. The first was, you know, James Paxton, who was telling me that he really liked the way Gary called all around the zone. Paxton's a guy who attacks the zone, especially high. He really, you know, he he likes to work off a fastball that's high in the zone, and you need to have a lot of confidence, obviously, to do it. And he really told me he likes the way that Sanchez, when he pitches to him, really just moves him around the zone, keeps him in there, but lets him attack. So I thought that was interesting. The other thing that really stuck out to me, and no surprise, it came from Zach Britton, who will talk if you let him. He said, you know, of course, you know, Britton, so unlike Paxton, Britton's a guy who really, his, you know, moneymaker is just a hard, hard diving sinker. And if you can just think about for a second catching a hard, hard diving sinker, you know, you can't catch it in a stationary way. You need to be moving the whole way. So, you know, Gary Sanchez has a groin problem. Gary Sanchez has a shoulder problem. He's moving so much to get this unpredictable ball. And Britton told me candidly that when he got traded over here, you know, he kind of he knew what he was walking into and he was understandably a little bit concerned. And just not only did he say that he didn't see the reason for the concern, but again, similar to what I said with Paxton, he noticed that Sanchez would call for the nastiest stuff and he wasn't afraid to do it. Even when he was hurt and even when he had to cheat a little bit to, you know, maybe predict where a ball was going, which in turn sometimes would lead to not catching a ball, he was still calling for the hardest stuff. And Britton said that not only was it not a problem, but he was really impressed by how good it was to pitch to him. Yeah, I, I learned a few things from this story. Going back to the shoulder injury, so it was to his receiving arm, his his non-throwing shoulder. And I thought you did a really good job of, first of all, putting in context how difficult it is to catch with a shoulder injury to your receiving arm. But also you talked about the, you know, some of the cross-ups and the miscommunications and how those can occur, which lead to the past balls. So when you put those two things together, I think I had a greater understanding of, you know, where some of the issues stem from. That again, you know, not to keep repeating myself, but this story is in no way what I set out to write. When I, and the way that came together was, you know, the first big interview I did in the story was with the Yankees catching coach, Jason Brown. And, you know, it's, it, it's fair to point out here that Jason Brown is Gary's catching coach. He's going to defend him. But he just wasn't even engaging with me on the question of the past balls. He was telling me that, like, it's almost crazy to even talk about this. Now, candidly, I disagree. Obviously, he had five more past balls than any catcher in the league, despite, you know, 100 fewer innings caught last year. So I think it is fair to talk about the past balls. But a couple things that he pointed out were first, The Yankees staff, as everyone knows, but the Yankees have a notoriously difficult staff to catch. You know, you have Tanaka, when he's good, his ball is diving like crazy. Obviously, we mentioned Zach Britton coming over. You know, these pitchers, their balls move like crazy. Chad Green said to me, he's, you know, he doesn't like playing catch with any of the pitchers (laughs) just because the balls move so much. But, you know, what Jason was telling me was of the 18, you you throw out six right away because those were just straight cross-ups where it might even be the pitcher's fault. And again, if you want to add some context in here, if you're expecting 85 down and away and you get 96 in and the arm that you're catching that ball with has a busted shoulder, you're just not going to be able to move like that. I mean, it's just, it's not going to work. The ball's going to end up behind the backstop. So, so I thought that Jason did a really good job of explaining to me 
all the ways that, you know, catching, as silly as it sounds, is so hard. You know, you, you just think of the foul tips and you think of the balls that you're blocking and all this stuff. But literally, you know, just the, the simple act of catching the ball can be very difficult if, if, uh, if it's not doing what you're expecting it to. And obviously, again, and I said this in the story because you can see me right now that I'm moving my arms around. It's hard to explain. The only way to really do it is to put your arm out there as though you're about to catch a ball. And try moving it around as quickly as you can to adjust to a pitch coming in and then imagine doing it with a busted shoulder. I learned a lot from talking to Jason about this. And then the story became kind of like, why doesn't Gary talk about this stuff? (laughs) You know, what's wrong with saying, hey, man, my shoulder's hurt. Yeah. And Gary's not the easiest guy to get to talk in general. He's certainly not the easiest guy to get to defend himself. And I all of a sudden, when I finally got to talk to him, the story just became him saying, like, everyone who wants to criticize me, it's fair because, you know, we charge these people money to come watch us play and they deserve to see us catch the ball. And of course, look, yeah, that's true. But at the same time, it's not that simple. There is a way that you can stand up for yourself. You got him to really, even though, you know, he wouldn't make excuses, obviously. That's the name of the story. No excuses. But I thought you got him to really offer some great insight as to why. And it it wasn't just platitudes of cliches wanting to sound like, you know, you're not making excuses. Um, He really gave you some good stuff, I thought. I mean, did you come away from your interview with him thinking like, wow, that was really good stuff he just gave me? So much. And and the thing is, and and not to you know, not to knock Gary, but he's a notoriously difficult interview. Now, I will say, as I somewhat mentioned the story, part of that is because he is always working so hard before the games, studying the pitcher, studying video, getting his body in shape, that he doesn't spend a lot of time in the clubhouse. But I would keep on trying to get an interview with him, and he would tell me tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And candidly, we've done a lot of features with Gary Sanchez over the years that the interview never really came together or something like that. And I was getting a little frustrated, I'll admit. When I finally got him, he's giving me just this profound and incredible stuff that I've never gotten from him. You know, And I tried to get as much into the story as I can, but he's just trying to say, you know, if you go to a concert or if you go to a Broadway show or something like that, you don't care what they had to do to get themselves ready for this. And baseball is the show. And as a fan, you have a right to get the perfect performance. Mm -hmm. And context doesn't matter. And injuries don't matter. And what you did last night doesn't matter. You know, the fan who paid the money to see there expects Gary Sanchez to catch the ball. And if he doesn't, then he's let that fan down. And yeah, we can laugh that it kind of sounds a little bit like, you know, the old Joe DiMaggio thing or whatever, but I was begging him almost, defend yourself here. All these players are defending you, all your coaches are defending you, and yet, you know, every time a ball goes to the backstop, you hear, oh, put in the backup. You just hear, oh, Gary's, you know, a substandard catcher, he's subpar, he's this, he's that. Defend yourself, tell me why that's wrong. And he would just be like, no, I should have caught the ball. We're sitting here talking about this story and we're talking a lot about the one negative part that gets you know brought up about Sanchez's game. But when you come away from this story after having read it, in your opinion, John, what do you think a Yankees fan who is you know a fan of Gary Sanchez, what do you think what do you hope their takeaway is after reading this story? That this guy expects himself to be the best at every single moment and that he's going to work to do that and no one's going to work harder. And that he acknowledges that sometimes things aren't going to go exactly right. 
but rather than tell you what caused that to happen or why that happened, he feels it's his obligation to make sure that the next time it doesn't happen. That is exactly what you want from any player. And you know what the fact of the matter is? We just talked about that three-run homer he hit in the ninth inning. He's incredibly good at doing that, too. He's probably going to be, he should be, I think, you know, the starting catcher in the All-Star game this year in Cleveland. This is what we expected from Gary Sanchez. Last year was a really difficult and bad year. And just the way he was talked about, look, I mean, we can get into the racial or the other issues that cause these things. Maybe he would do a better job of explaining away some of his problems or even just, you know, giving a sense of who he is a little bit more if he was more comfortable speaking in English or, frankly, if I were more comfortable speaking in Spanish. I don't know. But the the fact is, like, this is a very proud player who obviously, you know, takes to heart the things that don't work out necessarily, that that, that don't go so well for him in the the game. But he's just so committed to saying, you deserve, as fans, perfection. And every time I let you down... You, 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 the last thing I'm going to do is, you know, tell you why it happened. I'm just going to make sure that next time I'm perfect. I spent so much time in the lead up to the story thinking about those groin injuries and the way that that might cause a guy to struggle back there. It didn't even occur to me how crazy a shoulder injury would be for a catcher. And it's and, and now that I've written the story, now that I've spent time with it, it's like, of course, the shoulder injury would be a nightmare. And I literally could not get Gary to even mention that that was what he was going through. He just told me it was one part of the things that, you know, he had to prepare himself with every day. And that's just, you know, part of being a baseball player. So I don't know how you could read the story without being really proud as a Yankee fan of the guy that you send out there behind the plate most days of the year. I agree. I came away with a, a whole, you know, my, my appreciation for him that I already had uh, going all the way back to, you know, all the reports and stories we read about him coming up through the minor leagues and working as hard as he did to become an all-around catcher. Um, you know, I've always admired pretty much everything about his game, but, uh, you know, hearing what he actually has to say about facing adversity uh, really made me gain even more appreciation for him. So the story is called No Excuses. It's in the May edition of Yankees Magazine. Pick it up next time you're at the stadium or order it online. And you can also read the story at www.yankees.com slash magazine. So we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, you'll hear my interview that I did with Mark Feinsand, who, along with Brian Hoke, is the author of the upcoming book about the 2009 World Series champion Yankees, Mission 27. Stick around for that. And then after that, Nathan and I are going to talk about a member of that 2009 team who's still playing and starring for the Yankees, and that's Brett Gardner. So stick with us. Hi, this is Didier Gorius. You're listening to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. The Yankees Magazine Podcast is also brought to you by MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market regular season game live or on demand with MLB.tv. Your subscription includes MLB at Bat Premium, allowing you to stream live baseball on your favorite supported devices. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Visit MLB.tv for details. Welcome back to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. We have a pretty exciting guest right now. We have MLB.com's Mark Feinsand. Mark was a witness to the 2009 Yankees World Series run, and he and Brian Hoke have a book about that experience coming out on June 4th. It's called Mission 27. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. How you doing? 
I'm doing well. It's got to be a pretty exciting uh, couple days right now for you. Yeah, it's very exciting. You know, Brian and I obviously worked together for a long time. And when we decided to collaborate on this project, you know, we both thought, well, we both were on the beat covering the team in 2009 during this uh, amazing run to the World Series. And we had some pretty vivid memories of it. And we said, this would be a lot of fun for the 10th anniversary of the team. Let's go dig back into it. And as we did it, it was amazing the number of things that we had forgotten about or never knew about. And, and that's obviously the real fun of this book is, you know, catching up with all the, the cast of characters from that team and hearing some stories that we didn't necessarily know in 2009, but 10 years later, they're happy to share. So, I mean, here's the story. This is a well done job by you right now because I have about 10 questions written down here and I think you just teased nine of them. So I appreciate <laughs> your help. <laughs> you know, but let's start with one that you just mentioned. You certainly saw enough of that team and have, I'm sure, enough notes from that team to have written a book by yourself. What did you want to gain by going with Brian on this project? You know, I think just it's always fun to go back and look at a team uh, sort of in the rearview mirror with a little hindsight, with a little. Um, you know, we were all there. We watched it happen. We know what happened on the field. Um, but to hear from the guys who were involved all these years later when they've had some time to look back and reflect and see how things have played out. You know, in 2009, if I had told you that was going to be the only World Series that that group won, you told me I was crazy. Um, but this is the way baseball is, and it shows how hard these things can be. And when the Yankees signed Mark Teixeira and CC Sabathia and AJ Burnett, and they traded for Nick Swisher, and they had you know some other guys who they had just signed a year or two earlier, uh, you know you would have thought this was going to be the next dynasty. But I think the fact that we have the hindsight allows us to see how hard it is to win, and, and sort of what a special year that was for this group. Everything had to sort of fall into place for them to win this World Series. Um, and it may have looked easy at the time, uh, but you realize in hindsight it certainly was not. So let's go back to 2009 if we can. And and I love one of the things that the book, again, Mission 27, does so well is really not just take you through the season, but take you through the lead up of the season and kind of just, you know, those scenes in Brian Cashman's office and with him on the road as he's building uh, the pitches to guys like CeCe and things like that are really a very cool look at how the team came together. But what what were you doing then? How long had you been covering the Yankees? What was your experience on the beat? So my first year covering the Yankees was 2001 for MLB.com. Uh, I covered for them for six years, at which point I moved to the Daily News. Uh, and at the point that I moved to the Daily News, Brian took over for me at MLB.com. So he's been on the beat since the beginning of 2007. I did 10 seasons at the Daily News, and then I went back to MLB.com at the end of the 2016 season as a national writer. So uh, I had 16 seasons on the beat. I saw the Yankees get to three World Series. I saw them win one. Covered, you know, obviously some Hall of Fame players along the way, some very memorable personalities. That 2009 team was as as good a clubhouse of guys as I'd been around. And I think, you know, we addressed this early in the book, obviously. You know, the addition of CeCe and Swisher and Burnett and Teixeira really helped sort of pave the way to, to a new era, so to speak. The core four was still there, but there were some big personalities and big talents coming in. And that's, I think, why 2009 felt a little bit different. We don't get into the first game of the season until page 91. So the first 90... Uh, pages or so go through the the you know sort of ending of the old stadium, the opening of the new one, how it all came about, and how Brian Cashman went that off season uh, about sort of changing the culture inside that clubhouse, and and really CC Sabathia was the the a number one target for him, not only for what he could do on the field, but certainly what he could do in the clubhouse as well. I mean, you have to figure that CC Sabathia, if you put him on those Bronx Zoo Yankees teams, we're probably reading some different books about those teams. You know, so w- when you go into a, a 
project like this with Brian, you know, give me the lowdown on it. Um, you know, we had Brian on here a few weeks ago. We all know Brian pretty well. Now, do you prefer to handle verbs and adverbs and give him nouns and adjectives or is it the other <laughs> way around? Um, no, we didn't quite split it up to that extent. Uh, but we did, we put it, you know, we put together a, a chapter list of what we were going to be writing about and we basically just split them up. Uh, we didn't quite do a draft, although it felt kind of like that of, I'd like to write that one. Uh, you maybe feel stronger about that one. Uh, and we just split them up. We tried to conduct all of the interviews together, whether it was in person or on the phone, uh, which was helpful because this way we weren't just reading transcripts. We were actually participating in them. Uh, and then we split up all the writing. And then after all the writing was done, we each sort of combed through each other's chapters to, uh, you know, sort of work together and make sure it had one voice because, you know, Brian and I certainly have, have uh, you know, some different writing styles. And so I think it, it came out very well in terms of, uh, you know, making it sound like one person had written it, even though uh, we did split all of the writing. But the fact that Brian and I have been colleagues, we've worked together for three years, uh, we've known each other for well over a decade, it certainly helped us in terms of sort of just making an easy transition to, to do this kind of a project together. I mean, fair enough. But are there any tells? Like, I mean, if you're reading right now, are you? Is it easy for you to see? You know, okay, Brian wrote the sentence. Like, that doesn't sound like me. You know, I guess if you look at it and you think it sounds kind of tabloidy, I probably wrote those chapters since I did have ten years at a New York tabloid. But uh, we did try to 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 sort of make it as as consistent a voice as we possibly could. So once again, you beat me to the question. You know, you approached 2009 from different agencies, certainly. And obviously, you know, MLB.com and the Daily News are going to have different perspectives on a lot of things. How do you feel like those differences reflected in your memories of the situations, but also in planning out the book? I don't think it really did that much. I mean, obviously, the beginning of that season started with Alex Rodriguez's PED situation and his hip surgery. And, you know, Alex was a big part of the early part of that season as much for his absence as anything else. Of course, you know, from the minute he got back when he hits a three-round home run in his first pitch of the season, uh, he certainly made him his presence felt on the field as well. Uh, but I think we, you know, we were both there pretty much every day throughout the whole course of the season, right up to the parade. So uh, I don't think it necessarily impacted the way we viewed the season. You know, we were there in the clubhouse on the, you know, in the press box. When we sat down with, with players from the team, uh, and Joe Girardi and Brian Cashman to talk about the season. There may have been certain things that, that one of us remembered better than the other, but that might have been just more of a function of one of us being there that day and the other one having a day off than uh, than the outlets we were covering for. Sure. I'm also curious, what were some of the stories that, you know, as you sat down to do this, you know, in your head, you knew the exact story. And then whether it's, you know, baseball reference or even just talking to Brian, you find out that, wow, my memory of that situation was not at all right of what happened. <laughs> you know, the stuff that we didn't know wasn't necessarily about our lack of memory. It was really just a you realize that you can cover this team as well as you think you want to cover them. Uh, there's going to be stuff you don't know. There's going to be things that happened, little inside jokes, little events that you just don't know about because they don't want you to know about it. I mean, I didn't know that the team all referred to the coaching staff as Sigma Chi and the coach's locker room was like their little frat house. And that's where they would sort of gather at the end of, of wins. And they would sit there for hours just talking baseball and, um, you know, trying to figure out. Uh, what they did right, what they did wrong, etc. Legendary stories in the book about Alex Rodriguez's birthday party that summer. Uh, I'm not going to give too many spoilers away, but to, suffice to say, it was a very memorable night for almost everybody who was there. And it was one of the times where really the whole team was there. And this is one thing you learn about this 2009 team. And I think this all goes back to Sabathia. It was a very tight-knit group and a group that really did a lot of things together away from the field. Not every night, 
But, you know, once a month, maybe once every few weeks, they would have some sort of a gathering and really everybody would show up. Even the guys who had had families and wanted to be home with their kids, they'd make a cameo appearance just to be a part of it. Uh, and, And when you see sort of how this team bonded away from the field, it explains how they were so in sync and so in tune with each other on the field. You know, it was just it was interesting to hear people's memories of that season of things that we didn't necessarily know about. But you ask enough of the right questions and you get enough of the right answers. What do you think? I mean, you know. If someone were to say to you, and obviously, I mean, you have a stake in this, you have, you have money on the line here, but your your archives from 2009 are available. Someone can just go there and say, you know, I want to read about the 2009 team. I'm going to read every single Mark Feinstein story from that year, or now I'm going to go pick up this book and read it. You know, what what do you think is the difference in the stories they would find by going through the book as opposed to just going through that season day by day? Well, I think when you when you look at the stories that I wrote in 2009 and the stories that Brian wrote in 2009... Most of the quotes from the players are pretty baseball quotey, so to speak. They're just not necessarily all cliche, but no one's really speaking uh, candidly about some of the stuff. You know, we knew that, for instance, that Jorge Posada and A.J. Burnett, there were some issues there. Jorge didn't catch him down the stretch, and we wrote plenty about that. Uh, But being able to speak to both of them, you know, nearly a decade later about that situation, uh, you know, Jorge was pretty raw and honest and emotional in talking about it. And so is AJ. And so I think just the hindsight that comes with time uh, allows the people involved, the principals involved, to maybe get a better sense of what was happening, not only at the moment where you're either speaking emotionally or or you're just trying to sort of protect your emotions, but now they sort of go back and look at it in a different a different light. And I just think that the players are much more open about things. So even if it's things we knew about, 10 years ago, you know, the the insight that we've gotten into some of these events, whether it's a singular event or whether it was an ongoing thing like Posada and Burnett, I just think that, that it's a lot it's a lot deeper and a lot sort of more real because, uh, you know, time has passed and, you know, AJ is not thinking about having to throw to Jorge again. Jorge's not thinking about having to catch AJ again. So they can just sort of speak their mind on these topics. You have a couple of those guys from that team. You know, you've mentioned CC. Obviously, Guardi is still around. You know, Dave Robertson is still playing. This team hasn't obviously all retired yet. What do you expect that is still out there, maybe, that the 20th anniversary of the 2009 World Series book will include? What's an unanswered question for you? Well, you know, it's funny. I think the only unanswered question would come from Derek Jeter, because he's the only person we didn't speak to for the book. Uh, Schedules didn't match up, whatever it may have been. Um, we didn't get any new stuff from Derek. He is very well represented in the book since we did cover the entire season in 09 and he talked to us throughout that entire season. Um, but I, honestly, the guys that we spoke to, Sabathia still playing, Robertson still playing, um, you know, Brett Gardner still playing, they were, they were pretty good. They were pretty candid about stuff now. I don't think they were holding back. Um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe Joe Girardi would have a little more to offer. Joe gave us plenty of time, but, you know, Joe's still looking to manage again. He was not looking to go out there and raise any eyebrows with anything he was saying. He was great, gave us some great stories. Um, but maybe Joe has some more to offer 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when his when his career is over and he's not looking to manage anymore. But I will say the one thing that I was really proud of and that Brian was really proud of with this book, I think we got almost everybody to open up pretty well. Whereas, you know, 10 years from now in the 20th anniversary, I don't know that there's going to be all that much more. I think we did a pretty good job of uh, of really diving in and getting everything there was to get out of the 2009 Yankees. I mean, I hope you left at least something for the paperback. (laughs) I'm sure if there's a paperback edition, we will find something to add. Gauntlet Throne. What was your favorite moment on the beat that year? 
I mean, like you said, you, you had been around that team for a long time, and it's not, you know, obviously, no matter what fans think, it's not like you're cheering for the team, but obviously, you know, it gets exciting when you're covering that team to be experiencing something special. What was that moment, though, that, like, you really just had the most fun of the entire year? I think the most fun I had was just covering the clincher, just because I had covered this team for, you know, this is my ninth year covering the team. I had seen them get to two World Series um, you know, and then been in the clubhouse after they lost those World Series. I had been in the clubhouse when they lost to the Red Sox in 04. Like, I'd seen some pretty amazing moments that ended in complete heartbreak for them. You know, I'd been in World Series clinching clubhouses before for other teams, but it's different when it's the team you cover because you know the people better. Not that you're sitting there rooting for the team to win, but you certainly establish relationships with guys in that clubhouse and, uh, and guys and gals in the front office. And, and to see them sort of reach their career pinnacle and you know, the, the sheer joy and, and elation that's going on. It's it's cool. And it's cool to see people sort of having that moment and know that you saw all of the ups and downs along the way. So I would say that was the moment in terms of in season, you know, that game in Atlanta, and we we dedicated an entire chapter to this situation. Uh, the Yankees were going through a bad stretch. And uh, Brian Cashman made an unannounced visit to Atlanta. And Mark Teixeira called it, it was like getting a visit from the principal. And that night, Joe Girardi gets tossed. Francisco Cervelli, of all people, hits a home run to win the game. And, and people, even back then at the, in the moment, looked at that night as sort of a turning point of that season. And at the end of the season, we still looked at it as a turning point of the season. And 10 years later, we still look at it as a turning point in the season. So that was a night that I remember feeling at the time like this was a big win. This was a big moment. If they can build on this, they really have a chance to do something special. Let's go back to that clinch for a second, though. Those clubhouse scenes are obviously total chaos, but like you said, the players know who the beat writers are. What was the most memorable conversation you had in that chaos that you felt really captured the emotion, but also where you were getting good information? <laughs> uh, it is chaos. It is truly chaos in a clubhouse when a team wins the World Series. I can't say I had any real deep conversations with anybody that brought out much. The the moment I'll remember more than anything else was courtesy of uh, our buddy Nick Swisher, who wrote the forward for this book. And I think I used this to, to help get him to write the forward. I told him he still owed me because that night when I was trying to conduct some interviews, I had my tape recorder out, I had my pad out, and Nick came up from behind me and just dropped, you know, spilled an entire bottle of champagne on my head. And I'm pretty sure my tape recorder paid the price for it. My my notebook didn't make it out of the clubhouse. He was just having as much fun as you would expect Nick Swisher to have the night that he wins the World Series for the first of what turned out to be the only time in his career. I'll just never forget sort of the look on his face and just the the, the sheer joy he was experiencing going through that. And I've talked to him about that in the years since. And he just, you know, every time you bring it up, you can see he just gets chills talking about it. Uh, and so I thought he was a great guy to write the forward for this book just for that reason. You know what that moment meant to him and what that season meant to him coming off of a, a really bad year in Chicago and sort of how, you know, he went to turn his entire career around with his uh, with his trade to the Yankees. I have to say, he made it into the fourth paragraph of his foreword before he dropped the first bro. So I don't know if that's just <laughs> solid editing or if that's how serious he was let taking me, the project. Let me tell you a funny story about that. So I get my my box of advanced copies of the book a couple of weeks ago and my son, who's going to turn 11 uh, in June, he always likes to be the first one to read anything I've written. So he grabs the book and he goes inside and he starts reading it. He reads the forward and he walks back into my room and he goes, Daddy, Swish uses the word bro a lot. 
<laughs> I said, yes, buddy, he does. Just accept it and move on and, and it'll be just fine. But uh, If only you knew. Was, I thought that was quite <laughs> funny that uh, that even a 10-year-old, after reading two pages or three pages of a forward by Nick Swisher, immediately came to the realization that Swish uses the word bro a lot. And I will tell you, we did not edit that at all. That was 100% written by Nick and because uh, I certainly would not have used the word bro nearly as many times. I have one last thing because you bring up a good point with your son. One thing that I love about this book and that I you know, find interesting about this team is that people your son's age have a very, very different experience reading this book than I think that a 30-year-old would or even a 20-year-old. Your son has been alive for one World Series championship. Your son has been alive for an era in which the Yankees are basically, you know, in line with the Houston Astros. You know, whereas, you know, the 30-year-old, it's a different story that they're reading in a sense. You know, how do you, as a writer, do you think, approach the fact that, you know, your readers are going to come to it from such different places? Well, I think that's a, it's a good question. And it's really, it's not just the 10-year-old or the 30-year-old, but it's the 50-year-old and it's the 70-year-old. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's guys who have watched, guys and, and girls who have watched the entire franchise, uh, you know, who experienced maybe the first World Series in 1977, like I did, uh, you know, as a, as a kid growing up in New York with a father who grew up, you know, blocks from Yankee Stadium. Uh, or it could be somebody who lived through, you know, the Horace Clark era and said, you know, you know, this is this is the greatest thing ever. Or it could be a 25 year old who knew nothing but winning. And, you know, this nine year drought from 2000 to 2009 was a lifetime for them. So, uh, you know, we try to incorporate some of the history in there just to give sort of a broad sense of it. Um, but obviously, you know, the book starts with, with the last out of the World Series. It goes back to sort of the end of 08 and the darkening of, of the old stadium and then the move across the street and Cash's whole offseason. We, we have to assume that most people reading this book are Yankee fans of one or at least baseball fans. Uh, and so, you know, you've got a sort of a general basic idea of Yankee history uh, and what that means. But yeah, I think, you know, I think like anything, if you look at a, a team, especially a championship team, they're going to be viewed through through a different lens based on your age. And the one thing that's interesting to me about this team, or I say one of the things, and Sweeney Murdy, our pal from WFN, has always pointed this out. This was one of the only, if not the only, sort of standalone Yankee championship teams. This was not Absolutely. part of this was not part of a dynasty. I mean, yes, the core four certainly were, were part of the uh, you know, the nineties championship teams and this one, but it was a different cast of characters than that, you know, different manager, different sort of group in general. Um, you know, the nineties teams had four, the, the teams in the late seventies had, had two world series championships. You know, those teams in the fifties and sixties were part of a, a big dynasty and every, every Yankee championship team around that pretty much had the same cast of characters for more than one. This was the only one this group won. So I think it's a really special team for that reason, that even though Jeter and Posada and Rivera and Pettit won four others, this was the only one they won with Sabathia, with Teixeira, with A-Rod, with that whole group. Uh, and it, it makes it sort of a standalone, interesting team in Yankees history. The book is so much fun. I really, I can't say enough about uh, how much fans are going to enjoy reading this one. Obviously, the memories in it are good. It's Mission 27, a new boss, a new ballpark, and one last ring for the Yankees core four. It's from Triumph Books by Mark Feinstein and Brian Hoke. And since his name comes first in the alphabet, the rule is Mark Feinstein has to do all the press for this book. That's why he's with us. So, Mark, thank you so much. Where can everyone buy this? Uh, you can buy it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, wherever you can get a book, you can get this one. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and good luck with the launch of this. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Stick around with us for another segment we're going to do with a member of the 2009 Yankees who's still around, Brett Gardner. We're going to talk about our feature on him in the May issue of Yankees Magazine.
So Nate, I hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Fine Sand. It's a great book, and I think fans are going to love some of the stories in there. You know, as I said to Mark on the phone, you know what you're going to get in a sense. You know it's going to have a happy ending, or as the way they wrote the book, a happy beginning. But, you know, this isn't going to be a devastating look at a frustrating team. This is obviously a great story. But they did such a good job of just capturing the little moments and the big moments and the funny moments and the drunken moments. Um, it was, it, it, it's a great book. I had, I had a lot of fun uh, talking about the fine sand. And I hope that everyone gets a chance to read it. Speaking of things that we want people to read, though, also, there's a story that our editor-in-chief, Alfred Sanasiri III, wrote in this month's issue of Yankees Magazine. It's a Q&A he did with Brett Gardner called Well Seasoned. Nate, you've been around Brett Gardner for a long time. What did you find from this article that really impressed you? You're right. You know, I've been here for, for the entirety of Brett Gardner's career. I remember watching him come up at the end of 08 and seeing his contribution throughout that great 2009 run. You know, he's a fan favorite here and for good reason. The way he plays the game is what you would want out of any ball player, pretty much. I thought that this particular Q&A with him was pretty insightful because Al conducted the interview during spring training of this year. And, you know, if you remember, Brett Gardner was, I guess, technically a free agent this past offseason, coming off a year in which I think he hit below 240. The Yankees certainly have a number of talented outfielders. So there was it wasn't a sure thing that he was going to be back this season, but they made it one of their first orders of business during the offseason to sign both him and CC Sabathia and make sure that those veteran leaders were back in the clubhouse this year. He was pretty reflective uh, going into this interview at the time it took place. And normally in, in years past, if you would, you know, ask him things about his uh, journey to the big leagues or whatever, you know, he wasn't super reflective. He was more focused on the task at hand, but catching up with him in Tampa prior to this season, after everything that had kind of transpired in the months before, he was willing to to look back. And I think for me, you know, the thing I took away most from this article was just uh, how appreciative he is of the opportunity. You know, he doesn't feel like this is some some right he has earned to put on the pinstripes every day. I mean, he he really savors it and he appreciates it every day. And uh, I think you kind of see that in the way he plays. One one of the best parts about talking to Fine Sand for you know the Q and A we just did, and then you know prepping to discuss Gardner right now. Ten years is a long time. You know, it's obviously too long in Yankees world between World Series championships. But you know, so many of the names in Mark and Brian's book are obviously guys who, even if they've only been retired a few years, they just feel like so much from the past in a mm-hmm. sense. And then you look and you know you go to a game and there's Brett Gardner hitting a home run and there's CeCe Sabathia getting a strikeout. And you look at some of the pictures and you know they both have hair, they both look a little different. God, Brett Gardner looks so young, yeah. but he's still a crucial member of this team. And I think, I know, he takes a lot of pride in the fact that, you know, for all the push-pull in the offseason of, you know, the Frazier versus Gardner thing, I think in a lot of ways it brought out the best in both of them. Gardner is a competitive, fiery guy who certainly didn't begrudge Frazier for wanting to win that position, but also knew, like, great, let's both go out there and try to win this. Now, obviously, the injuries made it so that they were both in the field. But, I mean, we talked about the kind of home run derby we had here at this past weekend on Sunday, you know, Gardner hits a huge home run in that game. And, you know, we're starting to see that a lot again. You know, he had a rough early April to the season, but, you know, God, 
when he connects on a ball, it's just, I mean, it seems like it's so easy for him to put it into the second tank in right field and just, he's just made to hit in this ballpark still, no matter whether it's 2009 or 2019. Yeah. And, you know, regardless of how he's going at the plate or how he's feeling, he's always just, he's a great example. You know, I think if you're a younger ball player coming into the league, you know, you look for those guys that have been there and done that and you learn from them. If you talk to Gardner or CC, they, they, they'll rattle off the names of the guys who took them under their wing when they first got up here. And now they're paying that forward and they're doing the same thing. And, you know, what better example to follow than Brett Gardner? I mean, he's a guy who was a walk-on in college and, you know, worked his way up from there to become, what, a third-round pick um, out of the College of Charleston? Like, that in itself is no small feat. And then to be drafted by the Yankees and work your way up the minor league ladder and then carve out a, a spot for yourself in the Yankees outfield when they, you know, they're bringing in some of the biggest names and they have, you know, are developing other guys who may have more talent or trading for guys who might be more heralded prospects. But he's always just been that kind of steady, you know, nose to the grindstone, going to do whatever it takes to make sure he stays out on that field and uh, and contributes in very meaningful ways. It's a really good point. And I think that, you know, it, it's a little easy sometimes to kind of, you know, look at him in a certain way, whether because of, you know, his size or, fact you know, he's very, you know, open about uh, being a country boy from South Carolina and things like that. But he's just so comfortable with every part of being a leader of a team in New York, it seems to me. You know, there's no player that you don't ever get the feeling that he wants to reach out to. Al talks about this a lot in the story, and we've both seen it for sure. He's so comfortable in charitable settings, going into the community, bringing his kids with him so they get to see what it means to do this stuff. You know, I'm working right now on a story about LGBTQ issues because of the Yankees partnership with uh, the Stonewall Inn for the 50th anniversary. And of all the people on the team that I went to speak to about it, the guy who really had the most to say was Brett Gardner. Um, And I think he, you know, really embraces that role. You know, he doesn't like to talk about the fact that he's a leader or the fact that he's this or that, but subtextually it's all there. Yeah. I mean, he's clearly uh, very excited about this year's team and just the way the last couple of years have gone, the Yanks have been knocking on the door. They've been really close the last couple of years, and he feels like we're, we're right there again this year. And uh, you just you get the sense from reading this that you know even once everybody comes back and you know we get Judge and Stanton back out there in the outfield, you know it might lead to eventually a little bit of reduced playing time for Gardner. But uh, you get the sense like if the Yankees are winning, he'll, he'll he'd be just fine with that. You know it's. Uh, to him, it's all about the team. So, and look, I mean, you know, he, he essentially came up. Obviously, he was up a little bit before that, but you know, his first real taste of being, you know, a real everyday player for a full year was 2009. You know, that, that's if you start things off that way, it, it, it's hard not to crave that every single time. You don't want to say expect it, but sure, you even expect it a little bit. You know, whatever happens next year and beyond, I think that. Uh, you know, it's good to still see him around here. Yeah, I, I agree, John. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, it's there's never a bad time to have a, a full-length Q&A with a player like Brett Gardner uh, in the pages of Yankees magazine. But like I said, at this particular time in his career, I thought it was especially insightful and relevant. And sure, everyone who reads it will really enjoy it. So the story is called Well Seasoned. You can find it in the May edition of Yankees magazine, or you can check it out online yankees.com slash magazine and uh, we hope you enjoy it for sure thanks so much for 
hanging with us on this episode of the Yankees Magazine podcast. We always want to know what you think, so please email us at podcast at yankees.com. We are desperate, desperate, desperate for you, for your friends, for your enemies, for your family, anyone you know, get them to subscribe. We really want everyone to hear what we have to say about this stuff. We want to interact with all you guys. Follow us on Twitter at Yanks Magazine. Write to us letters at yankees.com. Go to yankees.com slash publications to subscribe. And of course, every time you're at the ballpark, pick up a copy of Yankees Magazine think you'll enjoy all the interesting stuff we have to say not just about gary sanchez and brett gardner but really we go one through 25 on this roster every month so check us out look forward to speaking with you in two weeks and have a good one bye hi this is aaron hicks for more stories like this one subscribe by visiting yankees.com publications or by calling 800 go yanks The MLB Ballpark app will complete your next visit to Yankee Stadium. Buy and manage game tickets, redeem special check-in offers, access exclusive content, and much more. Download the MLB Ballpark app today by visiting yankees.com backslash ballpark app. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.